Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so we have spent quite a few of our recent essays discussing the Hamiltonian system. Again, the three major planks of that are going to be a permanent funded debt, which just means a debt where you only really pay the interest and never really pay off the principal, a national bank that was explicitly unconstitutional, and protective tariffs and bounties for manufacturers, even though in Hamilton's day, the bounties thankfully never came into existence, although we would get them later on. So today what we're going to do is cover a very extensive response to the Hamiltonian system from one of the most prominent Jeffersonians of all the Jeffersonians, and that would be none other than John Taylor of Caroline. And how we're going to do this, um, I thought I could make this fit into one episode. Honestly, it seemed that it would go a little bit too long for me to do that. So what we're going to do is probably break this down into two episodes and then move on to our next phase in this long view of the war. So, but what we're going to do is read from three essays in John Taylor's compiled book called Eritor. Now, Taylor wrote these essays originally for syndication in newspapers, and he he first came out with them in 1803, and it was not until 1813 or 1814 that Taylor actually put his name on on these essays and released them as a book. So, prior to that, they had been released just under the pseudonym of a Virginia citizen or a citizen from Virginia. So again, this is Eritor, and what we're going to do today is read three essays. These are relatively short, but we're going to read three essays from his work, and we're going to focus on the political state of agriculture essay. So he has this book bro- broken down by different topics. So he's going to do, let's say, a topic on the political state of agriculture that we're going to read today, but he'll have maybe five or six essays on that. And then he'll move into another topic, talking about how to improve the soil, things of that nature. But this this book is really, it has a lot of meat in it. Now, Taylor's writing style may not necessarily be everybody's cup of tea. Sometimes he can meander on quite a bit. But he is very cogent in some of the things he says. And again, he covers a very wide number of topics in this book. 
So the essays that we're going to read, if you guys ever want to get this book, just so you know where I'm drawing from, we're going to read essay number three, number four, and number six today. And again, all of these are under the category of the political state of agriculture. So in essay number three, he starts off, he says, "...in collecting the causes which have contributed to the miserable agricultural state of the country, as it is a national calamity of the highest magnitude..." We should be careful not to be blinded by partiality for our customs or institutions, nor corrupted by a disposition to flatter ourselves or others. I shall begin with those of a political nature. These are a secondary providence which govern unseen the great interest of society. And if agriculture is bad and languishing in a country and climate where it may be good and prosperous, no doubt remains with me that political institutions have chiefly perpetrated the evil, just as they decide the fate of commerce." The device of subjecting it to the payments of bounties to manufacturing is an institution of this kind. This device is one item in every system for rendering governments too strong for nations. Such an object never was and never can be affected except by factions legally created at the public expense. All right, so here is Taylor very early still in American history talking about how the government has become factionalized and the government is setting up one class of people in opposition to the rest of the people. Now, when he says nation here, he makes a clear distinction. So he considers the government separate from the nation. So when he says the nation, you can actually think that means in terms of the people themselves, uh, not the not a nation in, in an abstract sense. So when he says nation here, he's actually talking about the people versus the government. But think about what he's saying here. The device of subjecting it to the payment of bounties to manufacture. And so he's talking about the process of subjecting agriculture to the payment of bounties for manufacturers is setting up one class of speculators against the interest of the people at large because at this point in history most of the people worked on farms most of the people were agrarian so he he's making clear here in 1803 he's making clear that this has already been a problem we're only about 10 years into Hamilton's system here and John Taylor's already saying look this has been terrible in practice this has been absolutely awful this country, because of its vast tracts of land and everything else, it ought to have good agriculture, but instead our agriculture is languishing, and I blame the political institutions and the systems for that. So Taylor making some very astute observations right off the bat here in essay number three, but let's go ahead and see what else he has to say. The wealth transferred from the nation to such factions devotes them to the will of the government by which it is bestowed. They must render the service for which it was given, or it would be taken away. It is unexceptionably given to support a government against a nation, or one faction against another. And this, to me, just represents an extremely clear line from John Taylor of Caroline all the way up through the Southern Agrarians of the 1930s. So what he's saying here is that, look, when these corporatists line up, or when these manufacturers line up and get these government subsidies... They are becoming bound to the will of the government. They will serve the government at the expense and degradation of the people, he, which he calls the nation. So that that is an extremely powerful point that he's making there because Taylor's calling this out all the way back in 1803, and then the agrarians are raising the same point in the 1930s when they write Who Owns America? They are saying, look, these corporations are not our friends. These big businesses, they are not our friends. They are in bed with the government. On one hand, they're going to talk about freedom when it suits their bottom line, but at the end of the day, they know who their real master is, and their master is government because they are creatures of government. And again, John Taylor is calling this out all the way back in 1803, roughly 10 years after Hamilton gives his report on the subject of manufacturers. 
So this is an extremely interesting point to me because he he's asking the really hard-hitting questions, or he's actually, in this case, making the really hard-hitting statements. But let's see what else he has to say about this. Armies, loaning, banking, and an intricate treasury system, endowing a government with the absolute power of applying public money under the cover of nominal checks, are other devices of this kind. Whatever strength or wealth the government and its legal factions acquire by law is taken from a nation, and whatever is taken from a nation weakens and impoverishes that interest which composes the majority. Their political oppression in every form must finally fall, however it may oscillate during the period of transit from a good to a bad government, so as sometimes to scratch factions. Agriculture being the interest covering a great majority of the people of the United States, every device for getting money or power hatched by a fellow feeling or common interest between a government and its legal creatures must, of course, weaken and impoverish it. And I just love this section of essay number three here. So think about that first sentence there. He says, Armies loaning, banking, and an intricate treasury system endowing a government with the absolute power of applying public money under the cover of nominal checks are other devices of this kind. So means to subjugate the people is what he's saying there. Now, it's interesting because of how these things were being employed. Recall from our previous episode that Hamilton actually called for an expansion of the Navy to protect trade routes and basically to open up commerce with foreign countries. And then, as I pointed out in that episode, when you get up to the 1850s with the forced opening of Japan and then up into the 1890s with the Boxer Rebellion, and then all the way into the early 1900s with the Great White Fleet, that's how the Navy has primarily been used in American history. It was used as a means to protect corporations, right? So it was used as a means to force trade routes, protect trade routes, this, that, and the other. Now, some people out there are going to say, well, this makes us richer, so I don't really care. But we need to look at the principle of the matter. Do we want a Navy that is paid for from the expense of everyone to protect the interest of a very small elite cabal? Personally, I don't think so. John Taylor clearly didn't think so. And he even went as far as to say that armies would also be used as a tool of oppression. Not so much in the sense that they would be fighting for the corporate will. Um, I think there's a case to be made for that in some instances in the more recent American wars. But in his day, it was more so from the English Revolution standpoint, that you could have a small cabal of politicians rear up an army and then use that army to keep themselves in power indefinitely. So Taylor here is really spelling out the Jeffersonian position on having all these permanent standing bureaucracies. And he even seems to be very anti-tax because at the end of the little section here on the first part, he says, whatever strength or wealth the government has is basically stolen from its people or from the nation. So whatever is taken from a nation, he goes on to say, it weakens and impoverishes the people. So if you take resources from people, you make them more dependent. If you make them more dependent, you make them weaker. If you make the people weaker, then by necessity, the government becomes stronger. And then in the last part of this little section where he talks about agriculture being the interest that covers a great majority of the people of the U.S., he's talking about how the great majority of people, the great agricultural interest is going to be preyed upon to sustain the government and its legal creatures. Now, who were those legal creatures? Well, in his day, it would have been the National Bank. It would have been any sort of federally chartered entity that was doing internal improvements or anything like that. So that's who he's talking about. In our day, this would be corporations because they are creatures of the state, part and parcel. They are creatures of the state. So John Taylor is calling this out again in 1803. In 1803, he's talking about this, that the interest of the majority is going to be sacrificed to the interest of the few and you're going to be exploited to maintain a small cabal of political elites who are out of touch and their legal creatures. 
So just keep that in mind. Again, Taylor, Eritor is probably one of his best works, or actually it is his best work when it comes to dealing with politics and the agricultural political economy. Although he has other works that really kind of flesh out his political ideology a little bit more in depth, this is the best one when it comes to the agrarian point of view and critiques of Hamilton's industrial system. So just keep that in mind, but let's go ahead and move forward and see what else he says here in essay number three. Desertion for the sake of reaping without labor, a share in the harvest of wealth and power bestowed by laws at its expense, thins its ranks, an annual tribute to these legal factions empties its purse, and poverty debilitates both its soul and understanding. The device of protecting duties under the pretext of encouraging manufacturers operates like its kindred by creating a capitalist interest which instantly seizes upon the bounty taken by law from agriculture, and instead of doing any good to the actual workers in wood, metals, cotton, or other substances, it helps to rear up an aristocratical order at the expense of the workers in earth to unite with governments in oppressing every species of useful industry. Okay, so here Taylor is saying, look, once we rear up these manufacturers, once we rear them up as creatures of government, they're going to side with their parent, basically is what he's saying, and this is going to come at the expense of the laborers. And that is very true. You would have corporations all throughout American history, time after time, cozy up to the government, trying to get some sort of protection. And even when you start getting the minimum wage laws and everything else, that really wasn't done for a beneficial purpose. That was more of a racist thing initially because they wanted to prize free black workers out of competition with white union laborers. But at this point, John Taylor is calling out what's going to happen. He says, look, you're going to rear these things up on the government teat and they're never one going to get off. So when it comes time to actually flesh out the business, they are going to appeal to the government and they are going to cozy up to the government at the expense of their employees and workers. So th- just a wonderful analysis here, wonderful analysis. And then where he's talking about desertion for the sake of reaping without labor, basically he's also excoriating the moral degradation that's going to result as a byproduct of Hamilton's industrial system. Because he's saying, look, when you work on a farm, you have to have a true tangible attachment to your property. You must get out there and physically labor with it to try to bring it into anything resembling a marketable product versus when you turn the great mass of people into stock jobbers and paper shufflers, they're just going to sit there idly and try to speculate on everything. They're going to cause manias is essentially what he's going to end up saying here in this essay. So this is a very, very poignant critique that John Taylor is bringing forward in Hamilton's ideas. Very strong critique. But let's see what else he has to say. And I promise I'll hush for a little bit on my commentary here, but let's see what else he has to say. The products of agriculture and manufacturing, unshackled by law, would seek each for themselves the best markets through commercial channels. But these markets would hardly ever be the same. Protecting duties tie travelers together whose business and interests lie in different directions. This ligature upon nature will, like all unnatural ligatures, weaken or kill. The best markets of our agriculture lie in foreign countries, whilst the best markets of our manufacturers are at home. Our agriculture has to cross the ocean and encounter a competition with foreign agriculture on its own ground. Our manufacturers meet at home a competition with foreign manufacturers. The disadvantages of the first competition suffice to excite all the efforts of agriculture to save her life. The advantages of the second suffice gradually to bestow a sound constitutional manufacturing. But the manufacture of an aristocratical interest under the pretext of encouraging work of a very different nature 
may reduce both manufacturers and husbandmen, as Strickland says, is already affected in the case of the latter, quote, to the lowest state of degradation, end quote. And just a very quick pause here. So there, Taylor is really striking at the heart of the matter for the South and for any of the agrarian sections of the country. So like Western Pennsylvania, so on and so forth. What he's saying is, look, not only are we in competition with foreign farmers, but we're in competition amongst ourselves as well, because you're competing with your local farmers to see who's going to get more of that foreign market. But not only do you have that, once you get your products or your agricultural produce over to whatever country you're selling to, now you have to navigate their tariffs and everything else. So the South was really getting squeezed on both ends from this. If you start implementing your own tariffs, now the South can't buy its manufactured goods for as cheaply as it could have. And that may, worst case scenario, provoke retaliatory tariffs from these foreign countries that cause Southern agriculture to suffer in foreign markets or the price performance of their agricultural produce to suffer. So you're going to hurt them monetarily on both ends. They're paying the majority of the taxes here and they're going to end up paying a lot more abroad and their market produce is going to suffer or their market performance is going to suffer and they will make less money on their crop yields. But back to it. This degradation could never have been seen by a friend to either who could afterwards approve of protecting duties. Let us take the article of wheat to unfold an idea of the disadvantages which have produced it. If wheat is worth 16 shillings sterling in England, the 70 pound the farmer sells here at about 6 pounds sterling, or excuse me, 6 shillings sterling. American agriculture then meets English agriculture in a competition, compelling her to sell at little more than one-third of the price obtained by her rival. But American manufacturers take the field against English on very different terms. These competitors meet in the United States. The American manufacturers receive first a bounty equal to the freight, commission, and English taxes upon their English rivals. And secondly, a bounty equal to our own necessary impost. Without protecting duties, therefore, the American manufacturer gets for the same article about 25% more and the American agriculturist about 180% less than their English rivals. Protecting duties added to these inequalities may raise up an order of masters for actual manufacturers to intercept advantages too enormous to escape the vigilance of capital, impoverish husbandmen, and aid in changing affair to a fraudulent government. But they will never make either of these intrinsically valuable classes richer, wiser, or freer. And so John Taylor, again, is talking about the interest of the agricultural section, but notice he's not saying, look, we're terrified to have to give up our black folks. We don't want to give up our slaves. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, if we do this, if we allow the government and the big businesses or the manufacturers to get in bed like this, we are going to create a class of masters who will wield power over everybody. That is exactly what he's saying, and that's what he was afraid of. John Taylor in the abstract did not like slavery. A lot of the founding generation was like that. Yes, practically and realistically, they did own slaves, but in the abstract, they knew that it was immoral. They knew that it was bad. But what they're saying in this case is if we succumb to an industrial system, they will make slaves of us all because you're going to set up a government that is too strong for the nation or the people, and you're going to have a corporate interest who has an interest in maintaining the status quo so they can keep getting their bounties and their kickbacks. And so that was essay number three. Again, it, that is the first essay in Eritor titled The Political State of Agriculture. And then we're just going to move straight into number four. So Eritor essay number four, he says, In this number, I shall consider a reason for protecting duties to encourage manufacturers, which, if it is sound, overturns the whole argument against them. 
In every essay on behalf of manufacturers, we are told that by creating this class with bounties and privileges, we shall both make ourselves independent of foreign nations and also provide a market for agricultural labor as, as an aristocracy in all its forms as a market for labor. And the high price of wheat in England is contrasted with its low price here to prove the latter assertion. It would be sounder reasoning to contrast the high price of manufacturers here with the low price there to prove that they ought to give bounties to agriculture to provide a market for manufacturers. Nations and individuals are universally promised wealth by political swindlers. The English price for wheat is coupled with the English political system. Without adopting the causes of that price, the effects springing from these causes cannot follow. The idle classes of the nobility, clergy, army, navy, bankers, and national debt holders, with their servants and dependents, are the items of an aristocracy which has reduced the agricultural class to a poor and powerless state by the juggle of persuading it to buy high prices, by creating and maintaining these idle classes. The national debt alone maintains more people than there are agriculturalists in Britain. These do not amount to a tenth part of the nation. It is to this combination of causes and not to manufacture singly that the English agriculture is indebted for its high prices. These very prices are themselves proofs of the oppression which produced them. They are the effect of the tendency which industry has to recover back some equivalent of fraud and of the necessity of fraud to extend some encouragements to industry. But shall we oppress our agriculture merely to demonstrate that abuses have a tendency to excite countervailing efforts and load it with English impositions for the sake of the inadequate reimbursement of English prices? And so Taylor, again, coming out against an artificial aristocracy that's founded on lending money to the government and then sitting back reaping the windfall from all the taxes collected to repay that debt. And that would be a very strong recurring theme throughout the Jeffersonian administrations all the way through to James Monroe. And then after Monroe, even when you get to Jackson and the war against the bank and eliminating the federal debt then, I mean, that would be a very strong position for the Jeffersonian point of view, although Jackson himself wasn't so much of a Jeffersonian. But point being that Taylor's calling all this stuff out. And think about what he says there. The national debt alone maintains more people than there are agriculturists in Britain. So he's saying, look, we have created so many stock jobbers, or in this case, England has created so many stock jobbers and so many paper shufflers that there are more of them than there are people who are connected to the land in England or in Britain. And that's not a good thing. He He's openly saying that is not a good thing because they're speculating, driving prices up, trying to engineer outcomes, this, that, and the other. And he's talking about them being an artificial aristocracy along with what he classifies as idlers. So the clergy, army, navy, bankers, and national debt holders. That's the classes of idlers that he's talking about. And that is something else from the Jeffersonian point of view. You wanted a militia, a true citizen's army, a true people's army, is what you wanted to defend the homeland. Because you did not want career military men who were going to be creatures of the state. Their interests were going to be bound in totality with the interest of the government. And even with George Washington, he was a very heavy investor in federal debts once everything kind of got going in full force. While he was, even while he was general of the revolutionary forces, he invested heavily in Virginia bonds and so on and so forth. So Washington made a lot of money off of governmental bonds, and Washington was a career military man. So this is what Taylor's saying, though, and what all the Jeffersonians were saying. We don't want that. We don't want a professional class of mercenary soldiers who are bound hand and foot to the interest of the state. We want a yeoman citizenry attached to the land, and we want them to constitute the militia that protects us from invasion. 
We don't want a professional offensive force. We want a small defensive and patriotic force. But let's get back to it. Let him who hopes to live to see the agricultural class of the United States reduced by English policy to a tenth part of the nation undertake to prove that such a reduction would be a proof of its prosperity. If he could defend such a theory, he would at least be practically disappointed unless our manufacturers should drive the English manufacturers out of the world and occupy their place. The ingenious device of agriculture in England in bestowing money on noble clerical military and chartered idlers for the sake of selling its products to get back a part of its own would turn out still more miserably except for the vast addition to the manufacturing class by foreign demands for its labor. If England only manufactured for herself, her manufacturers would constitute but a wretched market for agriculture. One laborer feeds many manufacturers. One manufacturer supplies many laborers. Before the promise of English prices for bread and meat, tobacco and cotton can be realized from driving in manufacturing by protecting duties, we must be able to drive out manufacturers by protecting fleets into every quarter of the globe. And so like some booby heirs, take up a parent's follies at the period he is forced to lay them down. And again, think about Taylor's critique there, that if you build up a navy or if you want to have mass production, you're going to have to have an imperial naval force to force open and protect these trade routes. But back to it. Still more hopeless is the promise of the manufacturing mania that it will make us independent of foreign nations when combined with its other promise of providing a market for agriculture. The promise of a market, as we see in the experience of England, can only be made good by reducing the agricultural class to a tenth part of the nation and increasing manufacturers by great manufacturing exportations. This reduction can only be accomplished by driving or seducing above nine-tenths of the agricultural class into other classes and the increase by a brave and patriotic navy. Discontent and misery will be the fruits of the first operation, and these would constitute the most forlorn hope for success in the second. By exchanging hardy, honest, and free husbandmen for the classes necessary to reduce the number of agriculturists low enough to raise the prices of their products, shall we become more independent of foreign nations? What? Secure our independence by bankers and capitalists. Secure our independence by impoverishing, discouraging, and annihilating nine-tenths of our sound yeomanry by turning them into swindlers and dependents on a master capitalist for their daily bread. Now, statements like this are where you get some libertarians and just people in general who say that the agrarians were nothing more than proto-socialists, but that is clearly not the case. Think about what John Taylor's saying. Right now we have truly independent farmers. They are completely self-sustaining. They don't need help from the government. They don't really need help from anybody. They can buy what they can't make from abroad. Things are great. They are truly independent. They own their land and they own their resources. But he's saying, in order to really prop up the manufacturers, and if we really want to increase the price of agricultural products along with this, we're going to have to subjugate these people and make them reliant on master capitalists. And again, in Taylor's case, he's clearly saying that these capitalists are going to be in bed with the government. He's saying that you're going to have to subjugate the yeoman farmer and make them dependent on this master capitalist for their daily bread or for their daily wages. So you're going to reduce them to nothing more than wage slaves solely at the behest of the government and solely reliant on the bounties and rewards bestowed by the government. And if the corporations or the manufacturers ever decide they want to side with the people, well, then lo and behold, the government's just going to take all that stuff away. So again, tie this back to essay number three, where he says, if the corporations ever turn against the government, they're not going to exist anymore. So we have a situation where Taylor is saying, 
we need to maintain these yeoman farmers, these independent farmers who don't need all this stuff, who don't have to get trapped in this system, and we don't need to allow private consolidation. We don't need to allow the government to do this. But let's get back to it. There are two kinds of independence, real and imaginary. The first consists of the right of national self-government, the second of individual taste or prejudice. The yeomanry of the forest are best calculated to preserve the first, and the yeomanry of the loom are best calculated to feed the second. A surrender of the first to obtain the second would be a mode of securing our independence, like England's converting her hardy tars into barbers and tailors, in order to become independent of French fashions. And this is probably my favorite passage from the Eritor essays that we're reading today. So here Taylor is talking about there are two kinds of independence. One is real independence. The other is getting into a pissing contest and saying, well, look, France, we don't need your baubles. We can just make our own because we subjugated our yeoman farmers. So Taylor is pointing out a very strong critique again here. He's saying, look, do you want real independence? Do you want to be self-sustenant or... Do you want to be dependent on a master capitalist for your daily bread, all for the sake of just telling another country, we don't need your trinkets because, look, we have somebody here who subjugated a huge portion of our population, and now we can just produce those things ourselves, even though we can't afford to buy them. So very strong point that Taylor's making here. Again, this is my favorite passage from the essays that we're reading today, but let's get back to it. The manufacturing mania accuses the agricultural spirit of avarice and want of patriotism. Whilst it offers to bribe it by a prospect of better prices, whittles down independence into cargoes of fancy goods, and proposes to metamorphose nine-tenths of the hardy sons of the forest into everything but heroes, for the grand end of gratifying the avarice of a capitalist, moneyed, or paper interest. Opinion is sometimes prejudiced, sometimes ill, and often craft. These counterfeits of truth have universally diluted the majority of nations into the strange conclusion that it will flourish by paying bounties to undertakers for national salvation, for national wealth, and for national independence. The first imposture is detected, the second begins to be strongly suspected, but the third has artfully provoked its trial at a moment when it can conceal the cheat under the passions excited by transitory circumstances. Hatred of England, a pretended zeal for national honor, and the real craft of advancing the pecuniary interest of a few capitalists have conspired to paint a protecting duty system into so strong a resemblance of patriotism and honesty as to lead agriculture by a bridle made of her virtue and ignorance towards the worship of an idol compounded of folly and wickedness. And this idol, as R.L. Dabney would say roughly a hundred years later, was the idol of mammon. And as the Bible says in Matthew, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters because you will grow to love one and despise the other. So John Taylor, again, is calling this stuff out 100 years before R.L. Dabney and more than 100 years, about 100 and I guess 40 years before the Southern Agrarians. But you can see, again, the continuity here. There is a continuous strain of thought that rails against this protectionist system built up on the backs of all the masses for the consolidated enjoyment of a few people who are well-connected. And so this one had some very strong words, no doubt. But let's go ahead and we're going to move straight into Eritur essay number six. And again, this is still under the category of the political state of agriculture. And so number six, he says, The arguments to prove the political errors under which our agriculture is grown in may suggest a suspicion that I am an enemy to manufacturers. The fact is otherwise. 
I believe that protecting duties or whatever else shall damp agricultural effort and impoverish the lands of our country is the only real and fatal foe to manufacturers, and that a flourishing agriculture will beget and enrich manufacturers as rich pastures multiply and fatten animals. He who killed the goose to come at her golden eggs was such a politician as he who burdens our expiring agriculture to raise bounties for our flourishing manufacturers. He kills the cause of the end he looks for. I meet such an insinuation by another argument. Protecting duties impoverish and enslave manufacturers themselves and are so far from being intended to operate in their favor or in favor of a nation that their end and effect simply is to favor moneyed capital, which will seize upon and appropriate to itself the whole profit of the bounty extorted from the people by protecting duties and allow as scanty wages to its workmen as it can. Moneyed capital drives industry without money out of the market and forces it into its service in every case where the object of contest is an enormous income. The wages it allows to industry are always regulated by the expense of subsistence and not by the extent of its gain. Moneyed capitalists constitute an essential item of a government modeled after the English form. To advance this item for the sake of strengthening the government against the people and not for the sake of manufacturers is the object of protecting duties. Okay, so I know some of y'all heard that and you're saying, oh my God, I'm pulling my hair out. This is Marx before Marx, but that is not the case. Now, what Taylor's saying is like, look, when we set up this paper aristocracy, when we set up this artificial class of men who have only benefited because the government pillaged everybody else to give them their bounties, then they're going to use these to conduct ill-gotten gains and conduct their operations in a very bad manner. And he's saying they're going to steal from the wages of their workers because they're going to base their payments on the cost of subsistence and not the cost of how profitable the company is or, or the amount of profitability within the company. Now, some people, again, will think that that's Marxist. My opinion on this is, especially in the age of mega corporations, there is not a doubt in my mind they could all afford to pay their workers more. If that means that you give the upper levels of management a little bit less so you can give the bottom tiers a little bit more, so be it. However the company wants to do it, fine. But when you start having corporations who have retained earnings going up into the billions of dollars, at some point you do have to ask, is that some sort of theft, at least in my opinion, because the shareholders cannot even force the company to pay a dividend. The only people within a corporate structure who have any sort of control over payment of a dividend or keeping that money in retained earnings is the board of directors. Now, there is a way that you can indirectly influence that. It would be to vote the board of directors out and vote in people who are sympathetic to paying a dividend. But when you're an individual competing against these huge institutional shareholders like BlackRock, Vanguard, so on and so forth, your chances of doing that are not realistic at all. Not realistic at all. And here's John Taylor again, all the way back in 1803, talking about what's going to happen. If you set them up, if you make them this powerful, they're going to be a tool of the government. That's where he goes on to say, to advance this item for the sake of strengthening the government against the people and not for the sake of manufacturers is the object of protecting duties. So he's saying if we give the government this power, it's going to make them infinitely stronger and it's going to tie the corporate interest in with the governmental interest. And they're always going to be working in tandem against the interest of the people at large. And we would see when we get to R.L. Dabney, he would say, well, so how do you fix this? And Dabney didn't really have an answer for that, unfortunately. But Dabney basically said, populism is not the answer because all you're going to do is pillage the corporation. And the corporation is going to turn ever more to the government against the people. And you're going to end up with a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
to some extent, I think he was probably right. But again, Dabney, unfortunately, he had a lot of critiques with not really many solutions. But John Taylor's calling out the same thing. And he's saying all the way back again in 1803, and keep in mind, he's responding to something that Hamilton wrote in 1791, late 1791. And he's saying, if we do this, you're setting up a powerful class of a small moneyed capital elite that's going to be in cahoots with the government, and they are all going to be exploiting the people as much as the people will be willing to bear. So very strong critique there and very strong point that he's making against an industrial system that's propped up through governmental means. Now, he also made another point where he said, look, if we have a flourishing agricultural class and this thing arises organically, yes, we can coexist in harmony. But at the point where you make them creatures of the government and you plunder one section to pay for the other, then we have a problem. And this is, again, a long, continuous strain of thought from the southern section. There would be some southern states who weren't necessarily in lockstep with this. Louisiana was one when it came to sugar refineries. Kentucky was another with the flax and hemp uh, industry. But for the most part, this particular critique would come from the south, from John Taylor's time, from Jefferson's time, all the way up to you get to the war for southern independence. Go back and read some of the things that Jefferson Davis was saying so very interesting point that he's making here. And again, it's a continuous strain of thought that we can find over and over again. But let's get back to it. True, we'll say many a reader, but that is not the design here. Oh, how reverential is the logician who can prove that an axe will cut under a monarchy, but not under a republic. Some king, I believe, requested the mercantile class of his subjects to ask of him a favor. The greatest your majesty can grant us, said they, is to let us alone. Protecting duties are such favors to manufacturers as the pretended favors of kings are to merchants. They impoverish their customers, the agriculturist, and place over themselves an order of masters called capitalist, which intercepts the profit, destined without legal interposition for industry. Many other arguments might be urged to prove that protecting duties beget the poverty of manufacturers, but this is not my subject. To that I return. The bitterest pill which the English government compelled our agriculture to swallow before the revolution was the protecting duty pill, or an equivalent drug gilded with the national advantage of dealing with fellow subjects, and after having gone through a long war to get rid of this nauseous physic, we have patiently swallowed it, gilded also by other doctors with the national advantage of dealing with fellow citizens. The power and wealth of the political doctors who have recommended these self-same political drugs depended considerably in both cases on their being swallowed. And what John Taylor is saying here, so in that first part he says, under England's rule it was the national advantage of dealing with fellow subjects, so he's making, making it explicit that he's talking about the monarchy, but then when it came to the American system or Hamilton system, it would be under the national advantage of dealing with fellow citizens, therefore delineating, okay, at least now it's a republic. But at the end of the day, what Taylor's really saying here is... This point really stuck under his skin. I, I mean, this really bothered him because in his mind and on all the Jeffersonians' minds, they fought the revolution to cast off the worst parts of the British system, but to keep the best. So home rule, decentralization, civil rights, freedom and liberty. Whereas now Hamilton is openly saying, let's reinstitute all the worst parts of the British system. And this really, really bothered John Taylor of Caroline all throughout his life. There's actually other books where he, he really makes it clear how much exactly this bothered him. So that, that's what he's hinting at here, just for some context. But let's get back to it. I will suppose that our protecting duties do not exceed the average amount of 25% of them. 
that they had expelled every article of foreign manufacture and bestowed on our brother citizens a complete monopoly of our manufacturer wants and an ability to supply them. I will suppose, too, in favor of a project which must depend on concessions to obtain the respect of examination, that the agricultural interest shall be able, after this blessed desideratum of the protecting duty system is obtained, to get at its old markets the same price for its products and annually bring home the whole in gold or silver for the use of our own capitalists and monopolizers. This have said many great ministers of state who had no knowledge of agriculture would complete its prosperity. It is the prosperity of giving one-fourth above the market price for all the manufacturers it needs. It is the boon of returning with empty ships from ports at which the same things can be bought for one-fourth less. It is the boon of a direct tax or a system of excise to supply the revenue which the success of the project would annihilate. And so that wraps us up as far as our study of John Taylor of Caroline for today's episode. Now, in our next one, we're going to pick this back up and we're actually going to look at two or three additional essays from him out of Eritor. So just keep that in mind as we move forward. John Taylor of Caroline is really rebuking this system in its entirety. But thank you all again for your time and for tuning in. Please remember, we are expecting Little Miss Jeffersonian to come kicking and screaming into the world later this year. So if y'all want to help us out with any of the expenses we expect with her, I have a link for a registry in the show notes page. Or if you would like, please consider becoming a contributing member so we can defray some of the diaper expenses. I call it helping me establish my diaper fund. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your goldbacks today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to y'all next time.